At one point in the Gospels, as Jesus is uh, talking with his disciples, he tells them that offenses will come. Offense will come. It's not one of those promises that we often claim. (laughs) Though offense is common to all of us in one way or another, no one likes to be offended by people because offenses wound us. They hurt us. They tear us. Some sitting in this room have been traumatized by offenses done to you. The actions, the events of others against you can actually feel like a torrent of terror um, at the mere mention of the event or the memory of what had happened. It can overtake us. Sometimes the offense is from the string of unkind words or judgments from family members that can actually leave you devastated. It's in these kinds of contexts that we all experience that you hear these prayers that come out of God's people in the Psalms. One of them is Psalm 41, where he says, the psalmist goes, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. And he laments that moment. We all have offense stories. Um, What are we to do with those? That's kind of what I want to focus on from the readings today. In our gospel reading, Jesus calls us to do something that seems pretty difficult, if not impossible. He speaks of those who are on enemy status with us, that somehow it's very clear that they are not after our good, that in some way they're after ill happening to our lives and us being diminished in some way. And starting in verse 27, Jesus does say, love those enemies, love your enemies, do good to the people that are hating at you. And even if someone strikes you on the cheek, he says, turn the other also. (laughs) And then he says, give to people, these people that have taken from you. We're to give to them. Do to others as you would have them do to you, he says. And if you love those who love you, how is that any different from a person who doesn't have faith? If you only do good to the people that are good to you, how is that any different than anyone else in the world who has no connection with the giving God? But he says, love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting, he says, nothing in return. Your reward, he claims, will come from God, who will undergird the kinds of ways that you've extended yourself when all that has happened as you've been taken from. Forgive, he says, and you will be forgiven. Give, he says, and it'll be given back to you. That's the promise in this. Somehow God is saying, I'm going to jump right into the middle of the stuff that's painful in the human condition, if you will let me. Jesus is talking about moving towards people who have only taken from us, even people who seek our harm. And this is what is at the heart of this business that we call, and the scriptures call, forgiveness. Here's what Jesus knows. He knows that all humans long to love from the fullness of an undefended heart. He understands that. And we all long to be loved unconditionally and without reservation. That's the cry in the human heart. And the reason God knows that is because that's what comes out of God is this pure, God is love. And there's this cry in us for that connection, right? Not only between us and God, but sometimes that's obtuse, obscure. So we look at it from each other. The kind of loving that that displays God's kind of care for us is put on parade when we're offended and 
we respond in forgiveness. There's something God about that. There's something wild about that. There's something that even feels unnatural about that. I mean, if we were offended, we want to pull back and not be touched anymore by the person that grabbed at us. And yet this notion of offense to forgiveness cycle, God is saying through Christ, let me into your life. Let me into what's going on in your context. Let me into where you work. Let me into where you live with those people that are near you and closest to you. And in the Jesus story, God actually uses offense as an opportunity to break into the world. We, when we're offended, the natural response is to pull back and to isolate. We don't want to participate with the offender. We become unforgiving. And when you're in unforgiveness, you're in ungiving. You can't can't give to the offender. You can't give them a smile or a conversation or or a good thought or even a prayer. You're in the state of ungiving, no giving. It turns out that forgiveness is just simply for giving. The reason that we forgive is because we're called to continue to give to the takers. Jesus urges us that when we start praying for them, which is the way we start giving to them, it's the safest way we start giving to the offender, is first by prayer. And what's interesting is that prayer reconstitutes attitude toward the offender. Prayer actually breeds intimacy, openness. Ultimately, Paul asserts that we're to forgive our offenders even as God in Christ forgives us. This is on a whole new level, right? That that's the way we're called to forgive, which I think we all have to agree that it's not really possible for us on our own to pull this off. And to make matters worse, uh, God seems to tie our own forgiveness, our own forgiveness for our own failure and trespass into our forgiveness of others. Now, that, that you can oversimplify that and think that you're earning forgiveness by forgiving. That's not what he's saying. There's not this sense that we earn anything, and there's a complexity in that statement. But we do know that somehow they're connected in ways that should catch our attention. And the Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then later in that prayer, uh, forgive us our trespasses. Yeah, so there's some way in which this is tied, which just simply means we should be after it. <laughs> we should be after ways to learn how to process and understand forgiveness. Now, forgiveness in these kinds of concepts just thrown right out on the table, just bam, awkwardly. What do we do with it? Because we're hurt. What do we do with it? Because we're in the presence of offenders. How do we begin to move towards forgiveness? Our lectionary text for this week start with Genesis 45, interestingly. It's the story of Joseph. And if someone had something to be offended about, it was Joseph. I mean, his dad set it up in a weird kind of way because he's, he's the favorite and everybody's mad about it. And as he's growing up in the house, it's just not good parenting from Jacob, right? It's just not a good idea to have one kid that you're fav- favoring over all the other kids, it, you know, just in a, a wild, open way. And the brothers, the older brothers, 10 of them, get really mad. And they eventually get so mad that they plan to murder him. That's intense. 
And so they're t- going to do it. And then one of the younger brothers said, hey, don't. And they ended up getting talked into selling him as a slave to slave traders to Egypt. Well, that's a win. <laughs> right? He didn't die. But the long story is that he ends up in prison in Egypt. And it's there that God began, he began to experience God's deliverance. He ends up becoming the right hand for Pharaoh, and the, which is a powerful political position in Egypt. Bottom line, though, is his brothers had, for all intents and purposes, destroyed his life. But God was with him. What if that's true for all of us? That even when we experience destruction, God is with us. And God ended up bringing good to Joseph. Now in our reading, the betrayed Joseph, who has all the power to imprison his brothers and get even, meets them. We pick up the text in Genesis 45. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him. So dismayed were they at his presence. Well, yeah. They did him real wrong, right? Then Joseph said to his brothers, come closer. They came closer. I'm your brother whom you sold to Egypt. I get that, right? Then he lays out this plan to care for them. And then in verse 15, he says, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Now, Joseph had to have carried, he's a human being, had to have carried anger and resentment for some time toward his brothers. He probably dreamed of revenge. Revenge, it takes, it doesn't give, right? It's an ungiving, it's a taking thing, revenge. But something started happening in his soul. The Psalms say that God proved Joseph through all of his stuff. I think what God was proving is that even when we're in the back end of the biggest slap that knocks us down and we think we're done, that somehow God redeems it if we listen, if we let God that there can something that can begin to turn around. And somewhere along the way, his ungiving gave way to forgiving. I mean, clearly it wasn't an instant thing because here's one of the tricks of this. Forgiveness is seldom quick. So if you struggled with forgiveness, don't feel bad. That's how it's designed. You have to struggle with it. It should be really really hard. Now, I've got a few thoughts that I think can help us here. And although some of the events in your life may be so traumatic that they won't be completely redeemed until eternity. Sometimes there are just things that happen that how, how do you reconcile them? I mean, think of the Jews when they're torn from their land and taken to Babylon and they watch their kids and their family members killed, and their land torn away from them, and the, and the place they worship destroyed, and there's no longer any sacrifices, and it is a bleak time. It got so dark, that, and they got, because they were under siege, that their babies died from malnutrition, and they had to eat their babies to survive. So think of that. Being hauled off to Babylon, and then you can understand why the psalmist goes, 
You know, we're here in Babylon. They're asking us to sing the songs of Zion, these beautiful songs. And we, you know, and we, we don't want to do that. In fact, we're waiting for the day when someone will come and dash your babies against the rocks. So the psalmist prays. Hmm. Let me uh, say, though, that God wants to help us with this stuff. And let me start by suggesting what forgiveness is not. It is not trying to have good feelings towards people who have wounded you badly. It's not like you were going to sit there and say, okay, let's forgive them. And you can have all these warm feelings. That's not what forgiveness is. It isn't about warm feelings. And forgiveness is not a one-time decision. It's a commitment to a kind of process. And forgiveness is also not a, um, a supernatural event. I mean, it's supernatural, but I'm talking about in a moment. I, there have been times as I've pastored over the last 40 years that I've had people tell me they had a moment that, was, that they couldn't let something go and then they, they were able to. So I'm not saying that that never happens, but it's definitely an outlier. Most of the time, forgiveness is a process. So I think forgiveness, I think it is a number of things, but I want to focus on two things. Forgiveness starts with being honest about your loss, about your offense. And then secondly, forgiveness is a practice, not a feeling that has a view to hope. That's those two things are what I want to deal with. First, let me talk about being honest about the loss. When you get offended, we have, um, we've been robbed of something. I mean, we've lost something. It might be respect. It might be dignity. Uh, it might be our innocence. It might be stuff, opportunity. Certainly justice has been dinged. Somehow we've lost strength. So when offense comes, I don't think God wants us just to lie down and take it. When he says, you know, that we're slapped across the face to turn the other cheek, I don't think he's trying to tell every Christian, just be a little match, you know, let people walk and it's okay. You know, it's not, just go ahead and beat on me. I'm a Jesus person. I don't think that's what he's saying. When offense comes... I don't think we're supposed to pretend it's all good. It's all good. And that loss doesn't matter. Whenever we suffer loss, I think we must mourn it and grieve it. Do you remember Jesus when he said, blessed are those who mourn? Blessed are the people that mourn. Blessed are the people that take note that they've lost something. Blessed are the people who stop and assess how deep this is. You've lost a relationship. You've lost a job. You've lost an opportunity. Somehow you were tricked into something. Somehow you've lost face, reputation. That should, you should stop and assess the sting. You don't act out of it. You turn the other cheek. You don't act out of the sting. You act from another space. But you have to honor, acknowledge, and face the pain of it. To acknowledge the horror of it. The unfairness of it. 
to not try to skip over it and deny it like any good Christian should. About 50 years ago, psychological experts began to talk about the pattern that human beings go through emotionally whenever they suffer loss. They said, you have to grieve. It's a natural process of grieving. And uh, they summarize this pattern. Most of you have heard about this. It's these five stages of grief that deal with denial and isolation, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And it's not just a clear path. You dance through those. Um, I used to think that Christians were supposed to skip these. Right? Oh, victory in Jesus. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, most of you are not going to remember that. Some of you, <laughs> you know, it was always, you know, we have so allowed our faith to be influenced by American, and I love America, but by American, you know, uh, positivism. Everything's good. We're going higher. Everything's awesome. Let's go up, take the country. And I, I love all that. But sometimes when you take the country, you lose. <laughs> sometimes you get beaten down. Sometimes, the, you know, I love the, the book of Hebrews when it talks about these wonderful people of faith. He says, they conquered kingdoms. And, you know, they slayed the lions and, and uh, they, uh, they, they routed foreign armies and then others were sawed in two. That's a bad day right there. So faith doesn't always make you win. Sometimes faith makes you lose. Sometimes when you have faith, you have to be honest about what's going on and you'll get in trouble for it. We don't have time to unpack what all those, those uh, you know, that five kind of aspects of, of grief are, but I, I do, I have come to believe that we're not supposed to skip them, but that if anything, Christians should do them really well. And, and, and I think the one thing I want to really just mention out of those five is anger. Of all the stages of grief, the one that is the least welcome in the Christian circles I have been part of is anger. Um, but I want to give a thumbs up to anger. <laughs> I was listening to Father Chris this last week. <laughs> you know, he was doing, he does a, uh, for helping ministers who deal with the, the lectionary te texts. He does a, a recording, uh, tries to every week, uh, which is just fodder for you know, being able to prepare and stuff. And one of the comments he made in this, one that he did this last week was, he said, you know, blessed are those who mourn, but he said, really, we could say, blessed are those who get angry. <laughs> blessed are the angry, right? What, what does he mean by that? Because mourning implies anger. You have to get angry in order to mourn. It's part of the mourning process, right? Uh, we, if you don't know how to really be angry, you'll never really know how to forgive. Ephesians 5, most of you have heard this text. Paul says it explicitly. Be angry and do not sin. See, anger doesn't necessarily mean sin it can become sin. It's what you do with it. But being angry, being angry is a righteous thing. Something has been robbed. Something has been taken that shouldn't have been taken. Something has been done to you that should not have been done to you. And it should make you mad. <laughs> Be angry. 
It's a righteous thing. It's, it's a righteous kind of anger. It's, it's as natural as the sting of a slap. But anger can quickly become unright, which is why we're told not to let it last long. That we're not to let it go down on the, the sun go down on our wrath, right? This idea. What, what the idea is the key is that we don't let anger become a motivation for us to act toward offenders. That's when it turns to rage or to wrath, and we do not have the green light for that. But we need to be mindful of our anger. We need to face the fact that we recognize there's a loss here because blessed are those who face loss, who mourn it. We want to be blessed, which means we must face it. We process it, not by quashing it, but by bringing it to God. Anger comes, we are mindful of it, we don't follow it mindlessly, we don't let it drive us, but we're aware of it, and then we take it to God. God, look what's happened. Look what has happened here. Look what has been done to me. The Psalms are so helpful here. I believe this is one of the best functions of the Psalms in terms of them being the prayer book of the church. Here's an example. This is in Psalm 35. Something is, this guy's not happy. Something has happened. Listen to what he says. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise to help me. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek my life. Let them be turned back and confounded who devise evil against me. Let their way be dark and slippery. Now notice he's not doing anything. He's just launching his heart to God. See, this is what's so beautiful about it. You can tell God how you feel. You can tell God, I want them to die right now. (laughs) I mean, you're not trying to kill them and you're not really asking God to kill them, but you feel that way. I mean, there's been times in my life, you know, with my closest people, you know, in my life that sometimes I'll look at them and say, you know what, I hate you right now. Do I really hate them? No. But think of the beautiful intimacy of being able to be honest and not cover up and pretend. We need to bring out our emotions, the raw, uh, scary, um, seemingly risky openness. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Let ruin come on them unawares. And let the net that hid, uh, they hid and snare them. Let them fall into it to their ruin. Then my soul shall rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his deliverance. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages, my life from the lions. You have seen, O Lord. Do not be silent. O Lord, do not be far from me. Wake up. Bestir yourself for my defense, for my cause, my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. And do not let them rejoice over me. Let all those who rejoice at my calamity be put to shame and confusion. Let those who exalt themselves against me be clothed with shame and dishonor. Hallelujah. 
Think about putting your neighbor in that who just messed with your lawn. (laughs) The reality is, is the Psalms process human emotion. It's what you feel. It's stupid. It's raw. But sometimes it's what we feel. And the worse the offense, the more we feel this way. In Psalm 55, I'll give you one more sampler. He's talking about his friends. It's not enemies who taunt me, the psalmist says. I could bear that. It's not enemies who taunt me. I could bear that. It's not adversaries who deal insolent with me. I I could hide from that. But it is you, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend with whom I kept pleasant company. We walked in the house of God with the throng. Let death come upon them. Let them go down alive into hell. For evil is in their homes and in their hearts. Take that. Best friend gone sour. See, what is that? That's just throwing up. You're just throwing up. Do you know that how your body works? You get something bad in you and throwing up is good for you. And if you got to throw up, you got to throw up. You know, sometimes what we do is we just keep it down. You know, because we want to be good. We want to be nice Christians. And it doesn't sound very Christian. Let them go to hell. But sometimes that's exactly how you feel. And if you dare to bring it to God like this, through the Psalms, you'll find after you pray those kinds of things, something starts to cleanse in you. The emotion stops being so bitey. Now, we're never, again, to let, we're to be angry, but to bring this anger to God. We're never, we got to be watchful, never supposed to let anger go unchecked. We're never supposed to let it linger. We must bring it to God. We're not to direct it at people. This is why in Romans 12, Paul writes this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. Let this in God's hand. Let God deal with whatever needs to be. Wrath isn't like God's mad at people chasing them down. Wrath is often the space where it it just becomes obvious that what a person is doing is judged. It's brought to light. And oftentimes in the wrath of God, people come to understanding of their failure. Right? It's, It's for the purpose of redemption. So leave room for the wrath of God. Let God show people they're wrong. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But you... If your enemies are hungry, feed them. Why? Because forgiveness is for giving. If your enemy's hungry, I mean, my mind goes, if my enemy is hungry, let them starve to death because then they'll see they shouldn't have been my enemy. God's going to use that hunger. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly right. (laughs) Bad bishop. Um, (laughs) When your enemy is hungry... Why would I take away the thing that might change them? Show them they're stupid. Show them they're wrong. But if your enemy is hungry, take out the pain. If the enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, she says you'll heap burning coals on their heads. Oh, that sounds good, burning coals. But that's that's not the idea here. Burning coals in scripture often mean purity. It's Isaiah saying, I'm an unclean person in the midst of unclean people and the, the angel takes a tong and picks up a coal and brings it to his lips and purges the evil. When by being kind and loving to our enemies, we're opening a pathway for God to begin to change them. 
so they're no longer your enemy. The way we change them is not by our action of anger towards them, but us bringing and processing our anger rightly and then turning toward them to gift and to bless. Forgiveness is forgiving. And then he says, do not be overcome by evil. But the way we overcome evil, he says, is with good. In other words, with giving. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are angry, but angry justly. You're supposed to be angry with those who hurt you or wound you or abuse you in the world, but you're supposed to be angry about loss and heartache and death, but never acting on it. You can even express that anger to God in the Psalms. Why did you let this happen? The psalmist says. Why did you sell us for a pittance? We didn't do anything, and yet you sent us into this. Where are you? Arise your, arouse yourself. God, do that. Sometimes we feel like God is to blame, but sometimes we won't dare articulate it. It's too raw. It's too honest. We'd rather press, suppress those feelings and pretend we're okay, and yet really... There's something deep in us that sort of doesn't know if we can trust God because God let that marriage end. God let that disease hit your body. God let that situation occur and you did everything you knew to do right and yet God did it. But no, we, it's okay. God is God. Let's just be good little Christians and just not talk about it. Psalms give you voice. I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily... Uh, freestyle your anger at God, but I think, <laughs> I think the Psalms afford that to you. And you can use those words to God, and you'll be surprised. God can handle it. But you can't let anger trigger actions toward people, including yourself. We're to pray the Psalms until the anger is calmed, until there are internal stirrings of the spirit that begin to nudge us toward actions of giving and love. Notice that in the list of the fruit of the spirit, one of the lists is patience. <laughs> when do you need patience? Because you've been irritated and mad. I mean, the very fruit of the spirit can't come until you process the anger, not skip it. But it's when you let the depth of the anger hit you, then you sit before the Spirit and you pray these things out. All of a sudden, in spite of that, you begin to emit patience and kindness, which is an, a, 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 a being solicitous, being, being engaged of giving to people, right? Mercy, love, gentleness. This is turning the other cheek, this process, and drawing strength from another place and bringing your anger to God and waiting there. And that's where we come back to our psalm we prayed. Do not fret because of the wicked. Do not be envious of wrongdoers. Trust in the Lord and do good so you will live in the land and enjoy security. The Lord will make your vindication shine like the light and the justice of your cause like the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret over people who prosper in their way, over those who carry out evil devices. Refrain from anger. He's talking about letting anger dominate you. Don't let anger dominate, but, and make sure you forsake wrath at practiced anger at people. Do not fret, he says. It only leads to evil. This idea of fretting is the notion of it hits you 
And it hit, you know, I, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish that uh, when we get mad and when we get angry and when we have offenses, it's just like it hits us and we process it. But the reality is when you get hit with an offense, it comes at you over and over and over and over and over. I can't believe they did that. You can throw it and it comes back again, like a machine gun pity. <laughs> and it can be, it causes you to fret. Fretting actually comes from the word to eat, to devour. In other words, it eats away your strength. So he says, do not fret. It only leads to evil. For the wicked shall be cut off. Those who wait for the Lord inherit the land. Yet a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look diligently in the place, they won't be there anymore. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. So here's the last point I want to make. When offenses come, I want to lean into that. They haunt us. And sometimes that, I mean, that's why forgiveness in the Greek word is actually a Greek word, aphaimi, and it means to send it away. To forgive someone literally means you send that offense away every time it appears in your mind. Where do you send it? In the Christian understanding, it's the cross. In the Christian understanding, if the cross is enough for God to forgive us, it should be enough for me to forgive you. You don't have to do a bunch of stuff to get me to forgive you any more than I have to do a bunch of stuff to get God to forgive me. We should forgive others on the basis of the cross. So every time that thought comes back, we throw it to the cross. Now you say, how long will that take? I don't know. Sometimes it comes at you a hundred times a day. And you got to throw it back. You remember when Jesus was talking with the disciples and they, and they said, how many times should we forgive our brother? Seven times. And Jesus said, no, no. At one, one version, King James says, 70 times seven times. Another part, another gospel says a day. <laughs> so that's like 490 times a day. You're supposed to forgive your brother or your sister. Now, 490 times a day. Now, I don't think anybody can sin against you 490 times a day. But... When someone sins against you, you can think about it 490 times a day. I think what Jesus is saying is, every time you think of it, throw it to the cross. So today, I mean, that's pretty fresh, and I'm doing it 490 times today. Tomorrow, it may only be 400. Next day, it might be 380. A couple days later, it might be 150. And then I see them again, back up to 480. Right? What happens, though, is eventually, after you throw it again and again and again and again, it will lose its power over you, and you'll be free. Forgiveness falls into the category of fruit of perseverance and faithfulness more than into a category of a prayer moment or a one-time decision. And the hope of forgiveness is that when we forgive, We step out of the way so God can address the wrong, setting things to right. Again, that may not be till eternity, but the process starts. Let me close with this text. This is the end of Joseph's story. It's Genesis 50. So his father dies. Jacob's father dies. I mean, Joseph's father dies, Jacob. And it says, realizing that their father was dead, Joseph's brother said, Hmm. what if Joseph kind of has this grudge against us, right? Maybe he was suppressing it, being a good Christian, and pays us back in full for the wrong we did to him. 
So they approached Joseph saying, hey, uh, dad gave us this instruction before he died. <laughs> uh, Joseph, I beg you, forgive the crime of your brothers and the wrong that they did in harming you. <laughs> right. Now, therefore, please forgive the crime of the servants of God, of your father. And so Joseph hears this. And what does he do? He weeps. The one who's deeply offended comes to a place where when they don't understand how much he's forgiven them, it caused him to weep. Don't you see it? So Jesus on the cross, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Such care. This is processed offense. And as it says, he, he, it says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him. And they said, we're, we're here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I don't know what all you did, what has to be processed, but I'm not God. And even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he's doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. So let me ask you, what if when people intend evil for you, God will intend it for good? I mean, what if processing offense and anger is a huge part of what it means to be a Christian? And what it means to bring God's kingdom to bear through your life? What if those are the places where life spills in to those around you. That even those that are trying to bring evil, that's their intention. God intends to bring life and to feed many, to help many, because you dared to bear your cross and to process this rightly. And all of a sudden, goodness and mercy follow you everywhere.